1. Introduction, approximately 10 minutes, 30 seconds. Welcome to the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum. You're listening to an audio-described tour, one that makes visual images more accessible for visitors with vision impairments and more meaningful for all visitors. Some material is tactile. It can be touched. I'll mention that as we proceed. But please, do not handle other items. Please direct your attention to your audio tour player. Hold the player with the screen and keypad facing you and with the screen at top. Below the screen are three rectangular buttons arrayed horizontally. The first button at left can be used to move back to the previous message. If held for longer than a second, it rewinds the message you're listening to. The center button is the play pause button. To use the pause resume feature, just click Press and immediately release this button. The rightmost button allows you to move to the next message on the tour. If held for longer than a second, it fast-forwards the message you're listening to. Below these buttons is a typical telephone keypad with numbered keys in three rows, three keys in each row. They are numbered left to right, one to three, four to six, and seven to nine. Below the eight key, is the zero key. You will use the numbered keys to access audio layers that provide additional information. If you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. On either side of the zero button are your volume control buttons. The volume has been set to a mid-range level. However, if you wish to decrease the volume, press the button to the left of the zero. To increase the volume, press the button to the right of the zero. On the bottom edge of the player are two earphone jacks. The second one can be used if another visitor wishes to hear this tour as well. The tour is organized in the following order. 1. Introduction, approximately 10 minutes, 30 seconds. 2. America 1932, a nation in fear, approximately 2 minutes and 15 seconds. 3. Promise of change. Approximately 6 minutes and 45 seconds. 4. Foundations of a public life. Approximately 5 minutes and 15 seconds. 5. A new deal. Approximately 23 minutes. 6. FDR's act of faith. Approximately 3 minutes. 7. War, approximately 31 minutes. 8. FDR's death and legacy, approximately 5 minutes. 9. The First Lady of the World, approximately 7 minutes. 10. Legacy, approximately 2 minutes. And 11. Behind the Scenes Conclusion, approximately 3 minutes 30 seconds. During each section, you'll be directed at times to access additional textual material if you have an interest in hearing more about the particular area. Now let's begin our tour with a few words about the library and museum and this historic site. The Franklin D. Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum is America's first presidential library and the only one used by a sitting president. 
Designed by FDR himself in the Dutch colonial style, it opened in 1941 on the grounds of the Roosevelt Estate in Hyde Park, New York. By donating his papers to the library, FDR established the precedent for public ownership of presidential papers. His library became the model for the nation's presidential library system, now part of the National Archives. With more than 17 million pages of documents, it is the world's premier research center for the study of the Roosevelt era. In the museum, which FDR planned as part of his presidential library, you will be able to explore exhibits about the lives of the Roosevelts, the Great Depression, the New Deal, and World War II. You received your audio tour player at the museum store. The museum is located in another building nearby. To reach the museum, from a position facing the museum store desk, please turn around 180 degrees and proceed about 20 feet to the lobby. Be aware that there may be a display table directly in your path as you walk to the lobby. Please turn left and proceed about 60 feet. Turn to your right and move forward about 17 feet to a doormat and a vestibule with two sets of double doors. After passing through the doors, you'll be on a path of stone blocks. Move forward about 33 feet and turn to your right, off the path, onto a gravel surface. Proceed 17 feet to a bronze statue of a seated Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt with a small table between them. Feel free to explore the tableau with your hands. A nearby sign notes that this statue is adapted from a 1933 photograph in the FDR Library of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt on the South Lawn of their Hyde Park home. Retrace your steps to the Stone Blocks path and turn right. You'll proceed another 50 feet before the path jogs to the left for about 33 feet, then to the right for 5 feet and onto a path of aggregate stone. As you move along for about 90 feet where you'll intersect with another path, you'll pass manicured lawns on either side and you may notice gaggles of geese along the way. Banners are suspended from light posts. One announces a new deal for a new generation, above a black-and-white photograph of a beaming FDR. Continue on for another 95 feet and turn right off the path and about 12 feet to loose stone. Proceed for another 24 feet to stone blocks and 30 feet beyond this juncture to a bust of FDR on a 5 feet high black pedestal. Note FDR's features as presented on the bust. The pedestal is engraved Franklin Delano Roosevelt, 1882-1945. You may have noticed the sounds of people approaching the museum. You're now standing in front of the museum building and its grassy courtyard, about 30 feet square. The museum is a two-story stone building that wraps around three sides of the courtyard. A steep slate roof extends down to the level of the top of the first floor, and six dormered windows pierce the roof at the second-story level. You're on a stone walkway that rings the perimeter of the courtyard, and the museum entrance is on the opposite side of the courtyard. Facing the bust, turn right and proceed 20 feet, then turn left. 
continued down the path, now underneath the slate roof, about 30 feet to a glass door, passing two wooden benches on your right. Enter through the glass door and turn left another 20 feet to a pair of glass double doors to your right. Go through the doors into the museum lobby and step onto a rubberized carpet mat about 8 feet square. You're standing in an open area about 12 feet high, 30 feet wide, and 20 feet across with a stone tile floor. Please note that there is a security guard station to your right. You'll need to show them your museum tickets, and all purses and bags will be searched. Turn left and walk about four feet, stepping off the mat onto the tile floor. Note there is a bench to your left. Proceed about eight feet to a pair of bronze busts of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt on two three-feet-tall white pedestals. These statues may be touched. Turn right from the busts and walk ten feet past another bench along the left wall. Continue about six more feet to a wall extending about 25 feet to the right. Two 10 by 12 feet floor-to-ceiling wall panels hang on each side of a central 7 by 10 feet photographic portrait of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Each wall panel displays a collection of tens of letters and telegrams sent to FDR and Eleanor in rows and columns ringing a central 3 by 4 feet video screen. Each screen shows a rotating slideshow of pictures. FDR holding up a baseball. FDR sitting on the grass with a black Scottish terrier. Eleanor wearing a fur coat standing and smiling before a line of military men and women dressed in winter wool coats and hats. Eleanor waving and smiling to the crowd from a bunting draped podium at a political convention. FDR seated and laughing with two young tow-headed boys, one on his lap. One of the documents displayed is a handwritten letter on lined three-hole punch notebook paper from Burton K. Davis of Butte, Montana, dated July 2, 1940, who writes, Dear Mr. Roosevelt, my family and I live in an apartment house, and our landlady and everyone in this apartment house and nearly all of the people I have talked to want you, Mr. Roosevelt, to serve our country another four years. A postal telegraph from the students of Morgan State College reads, We pledge to you, as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of our great nation, unlimited support in the protection of our country against the unprovoked attack of the Japanese forces. A typewritten letter from July 22, 1940 reads, Dear Sir, I was a Democrat and I voted for you. I shall always be deeply ashamed of that vote. Your conceit, greed, and stupidity have become intolerable. Don't you know the best way you can serve the country is to get out? Turn to your right and walk about 10 feet to the portrait of FDR on your left. Above the portrait is a quote from FDR saying, The test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much. It is whether we provide enough for those who have too little. Continue along this wall about 15 more feet past the second wall panel display and step from stone tile 
onto carpet. There are restrooms and water fountains about 20 feet ahead to your right at about a 30-degree angle through an open doorway in a vestibule off to the right. There are two water fountains on the left-hand wall and two unisex restrooms side-by-side along the wall to the right of the fountains. Beyond the restrooms, to the right, is a set of elevator doors. We will return to and exit through this vestibule at the end of our tour. This concludes the introduction to our tour. Please walk about 10 feet forward to begin the next section of our tour. Please press the rightmost button in the top row of your player's keypad to move to the next message on the tour, or press 2 on your audio tour player. 2. America 1932, A Nation in Fear. Approximately 2 minutes 15 seconds. A text panel on the wall to the left reads, In 1932, America was a nation living in fear. A global depression, the worst in history, had thrown millions out of work. Unemployment was approaching 25%. Factories were silent. Banks were failing. Farms were abandoned. And after three years of growing hardship, no end to the crisis was in sight. As the people suffered, their government seemed paralyzed. President Herbert Hoover had tried unsuccessfully to combat the crisis. By 1932, he was discredited and reviled. As conditions worsened, many gave in to despair. But others clung to hope for new leadership, a new direction, and above all, for action. Continue another eight feet forward to a wall display extending almost 20 feet to your left, entitled Unemployment and Fear. Life-size black-and-white photographs of men dressed in 1930s-era hats, flat caps and fedoras, and coats huddled and waiting in a line fill the wall behind glass panels. At the top of the display, two-feet-tall red neon letters spell UNEMPLOYED. Two white text panels hang about three and nine feet down along the wall, talking about financial collapse and mass unemployment. The entire wall of this hallway at your left is covered with a black-and-white photo montage of the hard times of the Depression era, including a photo mural of wood shacks set in muddy earth. An American flag waves on a flagpole in the background. At the end of the hallway, to your right, is a small theater showing a seven-minute film about how the financial crisis and rising unemployment bred misery across the industrialized world. You may notice the audio track playing while you're in this hallway. To listen to the information contained in these displays, press 211 on your audio tour player. If you choose not to listen to this additional text, please walk about 15 feet down the hallway through a 5 feet wide by 8 feet tall open doorway. Then walk about 3 more feet and turn left. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 211, Financial Collapse and Mass Unemployment. The first panel on the right reads, Financial Collapse. America's financial system was nearing collapse in 1932. Between the start of the Great Depression in 1929 and 1932, the U.S. economy shrank by almost half. 
9,000 banks closed their doors. Nearly 100,000 businesses failed. Corporate profits dropped 90%, and farm income fell by over 50%. As banks and corporations folded, millions of people lost their savings and jobs. Consumer spending plummeted, leading to further drops in business activity and even greater job losses. The nation was trapped in what seemed to be an endless deflationary spiral. About six feet down to the right, a second text panel reads, Mass Unemployment When the Depression began in 1929, the unemployment rate was 3.2%. By late 1932, it had soared to almost 25%. Another 25% of workers could only find part-time employment. Those lucky enough to have a job endured wage cuts and lived in fear of a sudden layoff. One statistic helps capture the scale of the devastation. In 1929, the U.S. Steel Corporation had 100,000 full-time employees. By late 1932, it had none. In an era before unemployment insurance, many jobless people became destitute. Shack cities, nicknamed Hoovervilles, sprang up in communities across the nation, Another common sight were bread lines, long lines of hungry people waiting outside charity institutions for bread or a bowl of soup. Turning to your left, the entire left wall of this hallway shows a black-and-white photo montage of men sitting idle on park benches, holding their heads in their hands, an apple cellar, piles of furniture on a sidewalk, dilapidated wooden shacks, and stray dogs, a family with eight children in dirt-stained clothes, men walking past a large sign reading, Jobless men keep going. We can't take care of our own. Chamber of Commerce. Text reads, Hard Times. As the Depression entered its fourth year, the scale of human suffering became staggering. In some industrial cities like Youngstown, Ohio, unemployment exceeded 60%. Millions of farmers faced the loss of their land as crop prices crashed. Hunger and homelessness increased. The suicide rate tripled. Amid growing fear and despair, Americans looked to their political leaders for solutions. Republican President Herbert Hoover tried to combat the Depression but he believed in limited government and economic relief through private charity. Hoover had approved some federal credit assistance for banks and businesses and increased construction spending to stimulate the economy. But he was reluctant to fund massive public works projects and other stimulative measures, and he refused to provide federal relief money to the unemployed. The crisis demanded much bolder action. At the end of the hallway to your right is a five feet wide by eight feet tall open doorway under a sign reading, Free Soup, Coffee, and Donuts. You can turn right about two feet into a small theater showing a seven-minute film about the world in financial crisis. Note that the film is triggered to play by a motion sensor near the entrance to the theater and that there are two benches in the center of the room facing a screen about 10 feet away. 
introductory text reads, World in Crisis. In 1932, Americans struggled to survive in an uncertain world gripped by economic hardship and shadowed by growing overseas threats. The Great Depression was a global phenomenon. Throughout the industrialized world, financial crisis and rising unemployment bred misery and fear. In some nations, economic insecurity fed the power and appeal of political extremists. The theater walls are covered with large, angled photographs, including images of FDR on the campaign trail, Hitler saluting, and soup lines, as well as newspaper headlines such as Wall Street Panic as Stocks Crash. Facing the back of the theater, exit the theater through a second doorway at the back of the room to your right. Walk about two feet, turn left, and walk about three feet and turn right. You will now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. This concludes the second section of our tour. You can begin the audio description for the next section of our tour, Promise of Change, by pressing the rightmost button in the top row of your player's keypad or press 3 on your audio tour player. 3. Promise of Change. Approximately 6 minutes, 45 seconds. You're standing in front of a 10 feet tall by 2 feet wide blue panel at the head of a 15 feet wide by 25 feet long rectangular gallery. Red, white, and blue bunting hangs from the ceiling, along with a banner reading, Welcome, Roosevelt. Our hearts and votes are yours. A glass display case about two feet wide occupies the center of the room behind the blue panel. Text on the panel introduces this section of our tour with the words, The Promise of Change. The country needs, and unless I mistake its temper, the country demands bold, persistent experimentation. It is common sense to take a method and try it. If it fails, admit it frankly and try another. But above all, try something. Franklin Roosevelt, speech at Oglethorpe University, May 22, 1932. With Republican President Herbert Hoover presiding over a nation in economic collapse, it was clear a Democrat would win the presidency in 1932. But which Democrat? By the spring of 1932, New York Governor Franklin Delano Roosevelt emerged as the front-runner. A popular leader of the country's most populous state, he attracted attention by aggressively using governmental power to help alleviate the suffering of the Depression. Yet, FDR was not universally admired. Some felt he was an opportunist. Others labeled him a lightweight. But Roosevelt's emphasis on action, embodied in his dynamic personality, appealed to a Depression-weary nation. Please turn around 180 degrees and walk about four feet to the right to an exhibit on an angled stand that protrudes about 12 inches from the wall. The right half of the panel is an interactive video touchscreen showing a photograph of two small boys, barefoot and muddy, dressed in tattered coveralls and sitting on a bare wooden porch with the title, Confront the Issue, What Caused the Great Depression? 
text on the left side of the panel reads, Historians and economists have debated this question since the 1930s. In the popular imagination, Wall Street speculation and the 1929 stock market crash were to blame. The reality is more complicated. Most scholars believe a combination of long- and short-term factors led to the crisis. Text at the bottom left invites you to touch the screen to explore the historical debate. This interactive display contains numerous photographs illustrative of the many and varied causes of the Great Depression, along with text exploring those causes in greater detail. To listen to the additional information contained in this interactive display, please press 311 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 311. What caused the Great Depression? Interactive. The screen displays a picture of a barren plain with two horses standing behind a barbed wire fence. On homemade wooden placards are painted the words, Notice, Bargain Farm Special, This Place for Sale. Most scholars believe a combination of long- and short-term factors led to the crisis. During the 1920s, America experienced an economic boom, but the boom was built on shaky foundations. The following screens discuss the complex causes of the Great Depression. Additional descriptions of the other photographs and information in this display follow. A photograph of dilapidated wooden tenements in front of shuttered factories with many empty smokestacks stretching off into the distance. The economy lacked diversity. Prosperity rested too heavily on a few basic industries, notably construction and automobiles. In the late 1920s, purchases in those industries declined, and newer industries did not emerge to take up the slack. A photograph of a woman standing in the rough-hewn wooden doorway with three barefoot girls ages 7 to 10. Unequal wealth distribution undercut consumer demand. During the 1920s, the proportion of business profits going to workers as wages was too small to create an adequate market for the goods the economy was producing. In 1929, after nearly a decade of strong economic growth, more than half of American families lived near or below the minimum subsistence level. When they made major purchases, they did so on credit. A photograph of a crowd of men in coats and caps stand in front of a large barn at a farm foreclosure sale in Iowa in the 1930s. The banking system was unstable. During the 1920s, nearly half of Americans lived in rural areas, but farmers didn't share in the decade's prosperity. Many were deeply in debt. Their land, mortgaged, and commodity prices too low to pay off their loans. These difficulties in the agricultural economy put thousands of small rural banks in financial peril. At the same time, many of the nation's largest banks were investing recklessly in the rapidly rising stock market. A photograph of President Woodrow Wilson and the American delegation to the Versailles Peace Conference, seated on Queen Anne chairs around a marble-topped table, 
in front of a floor-to-ceiling French window. International credit and trade was threatened. In the late 1920s, demand for American goods began to decline as some European nations experienced growing financial difficulties. Those difficulties were connected to international debts dating back to World War I. At the war's end, all the European nations allied with the United States owed large sums of money to American banks. This led the European allies to insist on large reparation payments from Germany and Austria at the Versailles Peace Conference. But when those nations experienced post-war economic troubles, they became unable to make their reparations payments or service their debts. American banks then stepped in and made large loans to Germany and Austria, which they then used to pay their reparations and other debts. Consequently, a dangerous cycle was created whereby the entire system of reparations and war debts payments, including war debts owed to the United States, was dependent on funds borrowed from American banks. This unstable system could not be sustained when America's economy ran into severe economic difficulties. A chart of stock price indices over time from 1928 to 1929. Three lines labeled automobiles, tobacco, and all stocks show steady growth until October 1929 when all show precipitous falls. All these underlying problems came to a head in 1929. The Federal Reserve Bank became concerned about growing speculation on Wall Street. For years, many investors had been buying stock with borrowed money, betting prices would keep rising. Commercial banks also joined in the stock-buying mania. In late 1929, the Federal Reserve tightened credit to reduce stock speculation. Instead, it helped set off the great October 1929 stock market crash. Stock values plummeted nearly 40% in one week. They wouldn't return to pre-crash levels until 1954. A photograph of well-dressed men in long coats and hats crowd around the entrance to a bank in 1933, showing a run on a bank by depositors. The stock market crash did not so much cause the depression as help unleash a chain of events that exposed the long-standing vulnerabilities in the American economy. Stock losses led to lower consumer spending by investors. The Federal Reserve then made matters more difficult by further tightening credit. Businesses reacted by cutting back on purchases. This led to falling production and rising unemployment. As joblessness spread, consumer spending fell further. This created even greater drops in production and employment. The country fell into a dangerous, deflationary spiral. The crisis soon spread to the banking system, in part because many commercial banks had speculated in stocks. When several prominent banks collapsed, depositors rushed to pull money out of the remaining banks. This led to more bank failures, and severe credit restrictions. In rural areas, falling crop prices caused thousands of small rural banks to fail. Millions of people across the nation lost their life savings. America's pivotal position in the global economy drew other nations into the crisis. 
when the U.S. economy began to weaken, European nations suddenly found it much more difficult to borrow money from America. At the same time, high U.S. tariffs made it hard for them to sell their goods in American markets. Strapped for cash, they began defaulting on their loans, further expanding the financial economic crisis both in the U.S. and abroad. A photograph of men walking past the sign from the Chamber of Commerce that reads, Jobless men, keep going. We can't take care of our own. Subsequent government action and inaction made a bad situation much worse. A photograph of the cover page of a 1931 address to the Academy of Political Science entitled Tariff Barriers and Business Depression by John H. Fahey. In 1930, Congress raised American import tariffs to record levels to protect American businesses. Other nations retaliated, reducing international trade and creating a deeper financial crisis in Europe and the U.S. A photograph of a seated pince-nez bespectacled gentleman with a large nose and thinning hair wearing a pinstripe suit and vest, white shirt, and black tie. Eugene Meyer, Chairman of the Federal Reserve, 1930 to 1933. The Federal Reserve Bank maintained tight credit in an effort to preserve a strong U.S. dollar. This contributed to higher interest rates that made economic recovery even harder. A photograph of a long line of men. Hat in hand, they scoop food into bowls in a bread line in front of St. Peter's Mission. Republican President Herbert Hoover did not act aggressively to end the crisis. Hoover made some moves to combat the Depression, but he believed in limited government and relief through private charity. Though he eventually approved credit assistance for banks and businesses and some public construction spending, he was reluctant to fund massive public works projects and other stimulative measures, and he refused to provide federal relief money to the unemployed. With the private sector in crisis and the federal government unwilling to step in boldly to restore economic demand, the Depression continued to deepen. You will now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. From a position facing this interactive display, turn left and walk about five feet, passing the blue panel on your left, and turn left. On your right, stretching down the entire length of the right-hand wall of this gallery, is a series of exhibits about the 1932 election campaign with several text panels mounted over life-size photographs of FDR on the campaign trail, FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt on a balcony, and FDR clutching his grown son's arm while standing and waving his hat to a crowd of people. The sounds of speechmaking are being played from speakers throughout the exhibits. To listen to information about the 1932 election campaign, please press 312 on your audio player. If you choose not to listen to this information, turn left and walk about 8 feet across to the other side of the room and turn right. If at any time, within the additional information, you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 312, 1932 Election Campaign. 
A text panel about two feet down along this wall to your right reads, Choosing Roosevelt. I pledge you, I pledge myself to a new deal for the American people. Franklin Roosevelt, acceptance speech, Democratic National Convention, July 2, 1932. The way Americans chose presidential candidates in 1932 was far different from today. Primaries and caucuses played a minor role. Nominations were settled by party leaders in smoke-filled rooms at national conventions. At the Democratic Convention in Chicago, FDR faced formidable rivals, including the party's 1928 nominee, Al Smith, and House Speaker John Nance Garner. Roosevelt led in early balloting, but could not reach the necessary two-thirds majority. Fearing attention might shift to another candidate, FDR's advisors negotiated a deal with Garner. His supporters switched to FDR, and Garner received the vice presidential nomination. With Garner's votes, Roosevelt won on the fourth ballot. In those days, presidential nominees did not appear at party conventions. FDR defied that tradition, flew to Chicago to accept the nomination, and he electrified the delegates with his call for a new deal. On the wall to the left of this text panel is a plexiglass display case that juts out from the wall about six inches. Inside are three yellowed, handwritten pages. One page is a draft of FDR's speech accepting the nomination for the presidency in Chicago on July 2, 1932. The draft of the speech's final page includes the simple New Deal phrase that gave a name to an era. There is also a note written by FDR to the 1932 Democratic National Convention suggesting that he fly to Chicago to accept the nomination in person. No previous nominee had ever done this. Another six feet along this wall is a set of two text panels which talk about FDR's 1932 election campaign and results. 1932 Election Campaign These unhappy times call for the building of plans that build from the bottom up and not from the top down, that put their faith once more in the forgotten man at the bottom of the economic pyramid. We are in the midst of an emergency at least equal to that of war. Let us mobilize to meet it. Franklin Roosevelt, Forgotten Man speech, April 7, 1932. The 1932 campaign was one of the most momentous in American history. Saddled with responsibility for the Depression, President Hoover was deeply unpopular. FDR's advisors urged their candidates to play it safe. His running mate, John Nance Garner of Texas, told him, All you have got to do is stay alive until Election Day. But FDR relished campaigning and wanted to show the country he was up to the job. He traveled to 41 states, making major addresses and hundreds of whistle-stop appearances. FDR offered few details about how he would attack the economic crisis, and some positions he adopted, such as a commitment to lower taxes and balance the budget, came back to haunt him later. But his energy, charm, and commitment to action carried him to a decisive victory. The second text panel, labeled ER on the campaign trail, 
reads, I did not want my husband to be president. It was pure selfishness on my part, and I never mentioned my feelings on the subject to him. Eleanor Roosevelt, This I Remember, 1949. Eleanor Roosevelt was uneasy as the 1932 campaign began. An independent woman with deeply held progressive beliefs, she had spent years forging a career as a writer, teacher, and political activist. Now, at age 48, she feared life as a first lady would end her hard-earned professional and personal freedom. Nonetheless, she hid her feelings and campaigned hard for her husband, especially targeting women who had only had the right to vote for a dozen years. No candidate's wife in history had played such a public role on the campaign trail. About six feet further down on the right, a text panel talks about the 1932 election results. FDR won an historic mandate in 1932. After three years of economic depression, Americans decisively rejected President Hoover and the ruling Republican Party. Roosevelt defeated Hoover in a landslide, and Democrats seized control of Congress for the first time in 16 years. They dominated the new Senate by an overwhelming margin of 60 to 35 and enjoyed a 310 to 117 majority in the House. Voters handed Franklin Roosevelt and the Democrats a blank check. Their only demand was action. What the public and most Democratic leaders did not know was what form that action would take. From a position facing the wall, turn right and walk about 15 feet back to the tall blue panel at the head of the gallery. Turn right, walk about 8 feet, and turn right again. You will now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. Stretching down the length of the left-hand wall of this gallery is a series of light gray, four-feet-high rectangular horizontal panels broken up by several blocks of text and photographs describing the worsening economic crisis of the early 30s, an assassination attempt on FDR's life, and the relationship between Roosevelt and Hoover. The upper portion of the wall is painted dark gray and covered with large, bold, overlapping words, evictions, political uncertainty, bank runs, foreclosures, economic crisis. To listen to the information presented in this portion of the gallery, please press 313 on your audio player. If you choose not to listen to this information, turn right and walk about four feet on a 30-degree angle to a glass display case running down the center of the gallery. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 313, Worsening Crisis Facing down the length of the gallery room with the wall on your left, a text panel about two feet down along this wall to your left reads, Worsening Crisis, We are at the end of our string. There is nothing more we can do. President Herbert Hoover, March 4, 1933 FDR's election restored hope to many, but before he could take office in March, the economy took a disastrous turn. America's troubled banking system began to collapse. During January and February, 
4,000 banks were forced out of business. Because accounts were not government-insured, millions lost their life savings. Panicked depositors rushed to the remaining banks to withdraw their money. These bank runs threatened the entire financial system. In desperation, 32 states declared bank holidays, temporarily shutting their banks to prevent depositors from removing cash. Remaining states put strict limits on withdrawals. In an era before widespread credit cards, this meant people could not make purchases. In many places, barter, IOUs, and money substitutes called scrip replaced cash transactions. America's economy faced destruction, but President Hoover hesitated to act. President-elect Roosevelt gave few clues about his intentions. About five feet further down on your left is more text, which reads, The 20th Amendment. FDR faced a long delay between his election in November 1932 and his inauguration on March 4, 1933. America's founders established March 4th as Inauguration Day. Living in an age of slow communication and travel, they wanted to ensure that a newly elected president had sufficient time to settle his affairs and journey to Washington, D.C. All American presidents, from George Washington until FDR, took the oath of office on that date. By the 20th century, dramatic improvements in transportation made this long interregnum impractical. In March 1932, Congress passed the 20th Amendment to the Constitution, changing Inauguration Day to January 20th. The amendment was ratified by the states on January 23, 1933. The new amendment took effect in 1937. All subsequent inaugurals have been held on January 20th. Two feet further down to the left, text reads, Assassination Attempt. On February 15, 1933, an assassin nearly killed FDR. The attack took place at a rally for the president-elect at Miami's Bayfront Park. After speaking to a crowd from atop the back seat of an open car, FDR slid down into his seat. Suddenly, gunshots rang out. A deranged, unemployed bricklayer named Giuseppe Zangara fired five bullets at FDR from close range. A bystander deflected his hand, but Sangara wounded four people and fatally shot Chicago Mayor Anton Cermak. Roosevelt rebuffed Secret Service agents who wanted to drive him to safety. He had Cermak placed in his car and comforted him as they raced to a hospital. FDR's quiet courage made a powerful impression on the nation. Under questioning, Zangara professed hatred for all officials and everybody who is rich. Convicted of Cermak's murder, he was executed on March 20th. Another three feet down to the left is a glassed-in display case embedded into the wall, containing several artifacts of the assassination attempt, including a sepia lithograph depicting FDR's head cradled in a massive hand with rays of light emanating outward. A political cartoon showing a skeleton wearing a dark robe and wielding a smoking gun that is being pushed away by an outstretched arm labeled Destiny. And one of the assassin's bullets inside a silver and blue velvet box. 
Continuing along this left-hand wall, another four feet, a block of text on the wall reads, Roosevelt and Hoover. As his inauguration approached, FDR's strained relationship with Herbert Hoover hit a low point. Once they had been friendly acquaintances while serving in Woodrow Wilson's administration. FDR hoped Hoover would enter elective politics as a Democrat. I wish we could make him president, he wrote a friend in 1920. By 1933, Roosevelt's admiration had cooled. Hoover found FDR amiable, but badly informed and of comparatively little vision. When the bank crisis erupted, Hoover sought FDR's support for a proclamation closing the country's banks and pressed him to reveal his recovery plans. Roosevelt resisted these appeals, determined to keep his options open. By Inauguration Day, the two were barely on speaking terms. Riding to the Capitol, Hoover sat expressionless, while Roosevelt smiled and waved to the crowd. After March 4th, they never met again. To the immediate right of this panel is a photograph of President-elect Roosevelt and President Herbert Hoover, seen at the start of their drive to the Capitol for the inaugural ceremonies. Two feet beyond this photograph, on the left, is a glassed-in display case embedded into the left wall containing several facsimiles of FDR's 1933 inaugural address with the text, FDR's inaugural address includes the famous line, The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. It's generally believed that Roosevelt's political advisor, Lewis Howe, added these words to the speech. But Howe's source is a mystery. Presidential advisor Raymond Moley claimed Howe saw the line in a 1933 department store advertisement. But a 1931 newspaper article quotes U.S. Chamber of Commerce President Julius Barnes as saying... In a condition of this kind, the thing to be feared most is fear itself. Roosevelt speechwriter Samuel Rosamond credited Henry David Thoreau, who once wrote, Nothing is so much to be feared as fear. Pages from three drafts of the speech inside the case illustrate the evolution of its opening, including the fear itself line. From a position facing this display case, turn back to your left and walk about 10 feet on a 30-degree angle to the far end of the glass display case in the center of the gallery. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. You are standing about 3 feet past the tall blue Promise of Change panel. A 10 feet long by 2 feet wide glass display case runs down the center of the gallery about waist high. Walking along this display case, several artifacts of the 1932 political campaign and subsequent 1933 inauguration are displayed here, starting with a gray felt campaign hat with a black hat band, like the one that Roosevelt wore during his four presidential campaigns. Continuing along, there is the wooden gavel and gavel block used at the convention to announce FDR's nomination, made from a linden tree that shaded the stage at one of the 1858 Lincoln-Douglas debates. A rabbit's foot charm FDR carried. A 1933 inaugural commemorative button with the words, OK, America, you bet I'm with you. 
and the Roosevelt family Dutch Bible on which FDR took the oath of office at all four of his inaugurations. You are now at the far end of this gallery. With your back to the short end of the glass case, walk six feet forward to a four-feet-tall wooden podium facing the room. Walking around to the back of the podium, visitors may stand behind it to deliver their own speeches. A copy of FDR's inaugural address is attached to the podium desk. Six feet behind the podium, on the back wall, is a life-size photograph of FDR being sworn in at his 1933 inauguration. To listen to this information about the 1933 inauguration, please press 314 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 314 1933 Inauguration Text on the left reads, Snapshots of a Nation America was a nation of 125 million people in 1933, less than half today's size. Many Americans lived in urban areas, but nearly 44% still resided in rural districts. One in four lived on farms. The population was young, median age 26.5 years, and less educated than today. African Americans comprised the biggest racial minority, and they struggled to survive within a society that denied them basic economic and political rights. Women comprised only 21.9% of the workforce. Those working outside the home were largely confined to jobs considered suitable for females, including domestic work, nursing, clerking, and teaching. Government was decentralized, with power vested heavily in the states. The small federal government played a limited role in the economy. To the right side of the photograph, text reads, Inauguration Day. So, first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Franklin Roosevelt, Inaugural Address, March 4, 1933. On Inauguration Day, Washington was cold and overcast. At the Capitol, FDR braced himself on his son James's arm as he made his slow way to the rostrum to take the oath of office. Then, as the crowd grew quiet, he opened his inaugural address. The new president offered hope to a desperate people. This great nation will endure, as it has endured, will revive, and will prosper. Then, in bold words that reverberate in public memory, he proclaimed, The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. The greatest applause came when Roosevelt said he would ask for wartime executive powers if Congress failed to act against the emergency. Eleanor found the crowd's reaction somewhat terrifying. A frightened public seemed prepared to do anything, FDR asked. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. This concludes the third section of our tour. From a position behind the podium, please turn to your right and walk six feet forward to a green, wallpapered wall where hangs a three-feet-tall portrait of Franklin Roosevelt at age 21 in a gold frame.
You can begin the audio description for the next section of our tour, Foundations of a Public Life, by pressing the rightmost button in the top row of your player's keypad, or press 4 on your audio tour player. 4. Foundations of a Public Life Approximately 5 minutes 15 seconds A 3 feet tall black and white portrait photograph of Franklin Roosevelt at age 21 hangs on a green wallpapered wall in an ornate gold frame. Text inside the portrait to the left tells us of FDR's Foundations of a Public Life. Franklin Roosevelt was 50 years old when he was elected president. His life story to that point was marked by both great privilege and great hardship. Born into a wealthy and prominent family, he enjoyed an idyllic childhood and was educated at the finest schools. He made remarkable early advances in politics. In 1920, at age 38, he was the Democratic nominee for vice president. But early success was followed by a devastating personal setback. In 1921, FDR contracted polio, which left him paralyzed below the waist. His political career seemed over. Yet Roosevelt would wage a courageous battle to come to terms with his disability and make a triumphant return to politics. Turn to your left and walk about four feet forward. On the wall to your left are numerous gold-framed portraits of FDR's ancestors, along with a text panel describing FDR's family background, wealth, and status. To listen to this additional information, press 411 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 411, FDR's Family Background. A text panel reads, Family Background. From the moment of his birth, Franklin Delano Roosevelt enjoyed the advantages of wealth and status. The Roosevelts were an old and prosperous family, conscious of their place among the nation's social elite. They traced their origins in America to the 1640s, when Klaus Martinson von Rosenwelt arrived from Holland. Klaus's grandsons established two branches of the family tree. Each flourished in fields that included law, banking, and shipping. The Oyster Bay Roosevelts, who summered on Long Island, produced President Theodore Roosevelt. FDR belonged to the family's Hyde Park branch. FDR's Delano family line was equally distinguished. Its earliest ancestor in America, the French Huguenot Philippe de la Noye, arrived in 1621. A seafaring family of whalers, merchant mariners, and privateers, the Delanos commanded great wealth and were linked to prominent New England families. You will now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. With the text panel on your left, Walk about five feet forward, turn right two feet, then turn left to stand before a rectangular alcove about six feet deep and eight feet wide, surrounded on three sides with eight feet tall glass-enclosed display cases. These cases are filled with artifacts from Eleanor and Franklin's childhood and education, as well as their courtship, marriage, and family life. 
To listen to more detailed information about FDR and Eleanor's early life and the artifacts displayed in this portion of the gallery, please press 412 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you're left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 412, FDR and Eleanor's early life. Walk forward about two feet and turn to your left to stand before a glass-enclosed display case filled with artifacts from Eleanor's childhood and education. A text panel underneath the display begins, Afraid. I was an exceptionally timid child, afraid of the dark, afraid of mice, afraid of practically everything. Painfully, step by step, I learned to stare down each of my fears. Only then was I really free. Eleanor Roosevelt, You Learn by Living, 1960. Like FDR, Eleanor Roosevelt was born into wealth and privilege, yet her family life could not have been more different than his. Eleanor's father, Elliot, was Theodore Roosevelt's younger brother. Attractive and charming, he was also aimless and an alcoholic. Her mother, Anna Hall, was a great beauty from a distinguished New York family. Eleanor was born in New York City on October 11, 1884. A timid and fearful child, she struggled with loneliness and rejection. Her mother was aloof and critical of her appearance. Her father, whom she adored, returned her love. But he was unreliable and increasingly mentally unstable. In 1892, Eleanor's mother died of diphtheria. She and her two brothers went to live with their maternal grandmother, Mary Livingston Ludlow Hall. Months later, E.R.'s brother Elliot died of scarlet fever. The following year, her father died of alcoholism. Orphaned at age nine, Eleanor was left to battle her fears alone. About waist-high, in the front of the case to the right, another text panel reads, Education. For three years, I basked in her generous presence, and I think those three years did much to form my character and give me the confidence to go through some of the trials that awaited me. Eleanor Roosevelt, describing Marie Suvesta's influence on her, The Seven People Who Shaped My Life, 1951. Until age 15, Eleanor was educated in small private classes conducted in her family's homes. She had few friends and froze when called upon to answer questions. But she loved learning and read voraciously. In 1899, her grandmother Hall sent her to Allenswood Academy, an exclusive girls' finishing school near London. Allenswood's headmistress was Marie Suvesta, a formidable woman of deep intellect and progressive ideas. Eleanor flourished at Ellenswood. She described her years there as the happiest of my life. Suvesta recognized E.R.'s hidden strengths, helped her gain confidence, and awakened her social conscience. This extraordinary character, E.R. recalled, exerted perhaps the greatest influence on my girlhood. In 1902, Eleanor reluctantly came home from Allenswood to make her debut in New York society. Her formal education was over, but E.R. was profoundly changed. She kept Marie Suvesta's portrait on her desk 
throughout her life. Among the items in the case is an oil portrait of Eleanor Roosevelt at age four, a silver Monteith bowl Eleanor inherited from her maternal Livingston ancestors, a gold ring set with pearls and diamonds, a folding lorgnette, a coral necklace and brooch, a letter from her father during his last years as he struggled with alcoholism and mental instability a tiger claw jewelry set that was a gift to her mother from her father, Eleanor's Allenswood Academy grammar notebook and report card, a letter from Theodore Roosevelt to Franklin Roosevelt congratulating Eleanor and Franklin on their engagement, dated November 29, 1904, her gold Tiffany engagement ring, their marriage certificate, and a photograph of Eleanor in her wedding gown and a sterling silver baby cup that belonged to the first Franklin Jr., who died of influenza before his first birthday. Facing this display case, turn around 180 degrees and walk about four feet, then turn left. In front of you are two more glass display cases of artifacts from Franklin's youth and education. The first text panel on the left at waist level reads, A privileged youth... At quarter to nine, my Sally had a splendid large baby boy. He weighs ten pounds without clothes. James Roosevelt, diary entry, January 30th, 1882. FDR's father, James Roosevelt, was a wealthy lawyer and businessman with investments in mining, railroads, and banking. In 1880, James, then a 52-year-old widower with a grown son, married 26-year-old Sarah Delano. On January 30, 1882, Sarah gave birth to the couple's only child, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The Roosevelts doted on young Franklin. Educated by governesses and tutors, he enjoyed a charmed, if somewhat solitary, childhood. His amiable father taught him to hunt, fish, sail, and ride on the Hyde Park estate. His adoring mother instilled a love of books and travel. Every year, Franklin accompanied his parents on extended trips to Europe. Summers were spent sailing, fishing, and exploring at the family's vacation home on Campobello Island in Canada. Among the artifacts in this case are a Cartier pendant watch James Roosevelt gave his wife to celebrate the conception of their son. Franklin's bassinet and baptismal certificate, dated March 20, 1882, young Franklin's monogrammed sterling silver flatware set and cup, a lock of his hair, a wooden hobby horse that Franklin's Delano grandparents gave him when he was four years old that he named Mexico, his boyhood camera and tripod, running high-kick medals, and his report card from Groton School, a crew trophy from Harvard, won at a 1901 meet, along with various photographs of Franklin as a baby, young boy, and young man. The next text panel to the right reads, Education. I am getting on finely, both mentally and physically. I am all right in Latin, Greek, science, and French. A little rusty in algebra, but not more so than the others. Franklin Roosevelt, letter to his parents, September 18, 1896. 
Until age 14, FDR was educated at home by tutors and governesses. In 1896, he entered Groton School, an elite Massachusetts boarding school for the sons of wealthy families. Groton was run by the Reverend Endicott Peabody, an affectionate but strict taskmaster who instilled in his students a sense of duty to humanity, especially through public service. Franklin idolized Peabody, but he found it difficult to stand out among his peers. He had come to Groton two years after the rest of his class and did not excel in sports, which were highly prized at the school. Young FDR dreamed of entering the U.S. Naval Academy, but his father insisted he attend Harvard. He enrolled there in 1900. That same year, James Roosevelt, long in declining health, died of heart failure. At Harvard, FDR was an average student, but served as president of the Harvard Crimson. After graduation, he entered Columbia Law School. Turn to your right and walk about four feet. In front of you, along the right-hand side of this alcove, are two more glass display cases stretching off to your right, filled with artifacts of Franklin and Eleanor's courtship, marriage, and family life. The first text panel reads, Courtship and Marriage E is an Angel Franklin Roosevelt Diary Entry in Code, July 7, 1903 Well, Franklin, there's nothing like keeping the name in the family. President Theodore Roosevelt to Franklin Roosevelt, March 17, 1905. Franklin was 20, and Eleanor just 18 when they began courting. Distant relatives, fifth cousins once removed, they'd met on occasion during their youth and enjoyed each other's company. In 1902, Eleanor returned from school in England to make her debut in New York society. In November, she encountered FDR at a society event. Soon they were meeting at parties. They danced, talked, and read poetry together. Eleanor was attracted by Franklin's charm and ambition, and by the sense of self-confidence and security that had been missing from her own life. Franklin thought Eleanor beautiful, and was drawn to her intelligence and concern for others. She volunteered to work with immigrant children on Manhattan's Lower East Side. He was stunned to see the conditions under which they existed. The Roosevelts married on March 17, 1905, in New York City. Eleanor's uncle, President Theodore Roosevelt, gave away the bride. His overpowering presence made the newlyweds supporting players at their own wedding. Among the items in this case are their marriage certificate, witnessed by Eleanor's uncle and aunt, President Theodore Roosevelt, and First Lady Edith Kermit Roosevelt, and Usher's stick pin, designed by Franklin, featuring three feathers set with diamonds from the Roosevelt coat of arms, a sterling silver sugar caster and egg boiler, a sketch Franklin's mother gave the newlyweds of a double townhouse she planned to build in New York City, one side for her and the other for them. Miniature portraits of Franklin, Eleanor, Elliot, James, and Anna Roosevelt, painted from life in 1914 by Claude P. Newell to mark the Roosevelt's 10th wedding anniversary, and a photograph of the Roosevelt family circa 1908. 
A second text panel reads, Family Life Father was not a disciplinarian by temperament. Those parent-like duties he seemed to feel lay entirely in the feminine realm and should rightfully be fulfilled by mother and granny. Anna Roosevelt, 1949 After an extended European honeymoon, the Roosevelts settled into a comfortable life in New York. Franklin attended Columbia Law School and was admitted to the New York Bar in 1907. The couple's first child, Anna, was born in 1906. Five sons would follow during the next ten years. One died in infancy of influenza. Sarah Roosevelt, whom E.R. hoped could be the loving mother she never had, played a dominating role in the Roosevelt household, creating tension between Eleanor and Franklin. Sarah's wedding gift was a townhouse adjoining another she built for herself. The two homes had connecting doorways. Initially uncertain and insecure, E.R. deferred to her mother-in-law on many matters, including household management, social protocols, and child-rearing. Franklin clerked at a prominent New York law firm, but he was bored by the law and already hoped to enter politics and follow the path blazed by his cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, all the way to the White House. Facing the display case, turn to your right and walk about four feet on a slight angle to your right to come to a three-feet-tall, glass-topped wooden table approximately four feet wide and three feet deep in the center of the room. You will now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. Please turn to your right and walk about four feet. On your right is a three feet tall, glass-topped wooden table, approximately four feet wide and three feet deep, in the center of the room, and walk around to the other side of the table. You are standing in front of an interactive touchscreen exhibit featuring four video scrapbooks, which let you examine photographs and document highlights of Franklin and Eleanor's lives prior to FDR's presidency. Left to right, they are labeled Family Scrapbook, Franklin's Scrapbook, The Roosevelt Family Tree, and Eleanor's Scrapbook. Touching any of the covers opens the scrapbook. From the scrapbook table, turn around 180 degrees and walk about 5 feet to your right on a 45-degree angle to come to a wall display about the beginnings of Franklin's political life and the influence of his uncle, Theodore Roosevelt. Also in this area are two panels exploring Franklin and Eleanor's personal and extramarital relationships. To listen to a description of this additional information, please press 413 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 413, FDR's early political career and FDR's and ER's relationships. A text panel on the wall to your left just outside the alcove reads, Rising Political Star. Franklin Roosevelt entered politics at age 28. Within 10 years, he was the Democratic Party's candidate for vice president of the United States. Handsome, engaging, and blessed with a celebrated vote-getting last name, FDR began his rapid rise by winning a seat in New York's state Senate in 1910, 
and championing the kind of progressive reforms his distant cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, had called for. In 1912, he backed his own party's progressive candidate for president, Woodrow Wilson, and was rewarded with his distant cousin's old job as Assistant Secretary of the Navy. After Theodore Roosevelt's death in 1919, the Democrats turned to Franklin as their 1920 vice presidential nominee in hopes of attracting some of T.R.'s old followers to their cause. It didn't work. FDR and presidential nominee James M. Cox lost badly. But politicians and voters alike were impressed by young Roosevelt's energy and charm. His political future seemed limitless. To the right of this panel are photographs of Franklin in his first political campaign. About three feet further along to your right is a plexiglass case which juts out about six inches from the wall, showing FDR state Senate campaign posters and buttons, a U.S. Senate campaign button, a U.S. Navy recruitment poster from 1919 depicting Assistant Secretary of the Navy Roosevelt with Admirals J.S. McKean and William S. Sims in FDR's office and sheet music of a 1920 campaign song celebrating the Democrats' support for the League of Nations. Three feet to the right of this display case, on your left, is another wall text panel describing Franklin's relationship with his distant cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, better known to him as Uncle Ted. I think Franklin always intended to go into politics. I think Uncle Ted was responsible for that. Eleanor Roosevelt. Franklin did not merely admire his distant cousin Theodore Roosevelt. He deliberately emulated him. He wore pince-nez glasses, because T.R. did, and during his early years on the campaign trail, even liked to use his favorite adjective, bully, to express his pleasure at the way things were going. Although Theodore was a Republican, and then a progressive, and Franklin chose to run as a Democrat, the old Roosevelt always encouraged the younger one, who was married to his favorite niece. For his part, FDR set out early to follow as precisely as he could Uncle Ted's climb to the White House, office by office, state legislator, assistant secretary of the Navy, governor of New York, and then the presidency. With this panel on your left, turn right and walk about three feet and turn left. Along the eight-feet-wide wall in front of you are two panels exploring Franklin and Eleanor's personal and extramarital relationships. The first panel on the left is entitled Lucy Mercer. The bottom dropped out of my own particular world, and I faced myself, my surroundings, my world, honestly, for the first time. Eleanor Roosevelt, recalling her discovery of FDR's affair with Lucy Mercer. In September 1918, FDR became ill with pneumonia on his way home from an overseas trip. While unpacking his bags, Eleanor made a devastating discovery. A packet of letters from Lucy Mercer, her former social secretary. It is unclear when FDR's relationship with Mercer began or precisely how involved she and Roosevelt were, but gossip about them had begun in 1917, and Eleanor may already have harbored suspicions that the letters served to confirm. 
According to some family members and friends, she offered Franklin a divorce. His mother threatened to disinherit him if he left his wife. His closest aide, Lewis Howe, warned that a divorce would destroy his career. In the end, he vowed never to see Lucy Mercer again, a promise he did not keep. The Roosevelts remained married, but thereafter were more political partners than husband and wife. A second larger wall text panel on the right asks the question, friendships or relationships? Over the course of their careers, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt each enjoyed close friendships about which their contemporaries gossiped and historians continued to speculate. While governor of New York, FDR assigned state trooper Earl Miller to protect his wife. Handsome and affable, Miller became one of her closest friends, and some have suggested Mrs. Roosevelt was romantically attached to him. Her closeness to pioneering newspaper woman Lorena Hickok also caused speculation. The two often traveled together during the early 1930s, and for a time wrote one another intensively affectionate letters almost every day. Washington insiders wondered about the exact nature of the relationship between FDR and his unmarried, longtime secretary, Marguerite Lehand, known as Missy. Fiercely devoted to her boss, she often controlled who got in to see him at the White House and acted as his hostess at his cottage in Warm Springs, Georgia. Margaret Suckley, a shy, distant cousin of the president, escaped the attention even of those who thought they knew him best. But she was his closest confidant during his last years, the only person to whom he spoke frankly about the daily hardships polio imposed upon him. From a position facing the panels, turn right and walk about three feet to a doorway on your left and turn left. You will now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. Turn right and walk about eight feet on a 45-degree angle to a doorway which leads to a small theater, about 12 feet long and 8 feet wide, and showing a six-minute film about Franklin's polio fight and political comeback. A row of three benches jut out about four feet from the left wall. Note that the film is activated by a motion sensor in the ceiling in the center of the room, to the right of the middle bench. Along the back wall of the theater, to your left, behind the three benches, are two floor-to-ceiling glass-enclosed display cases with artifacts of FDR's life with polio. To listen to additional information about these artifacts, the March of Dimes, and FDR's struggle with polio and paralysis, please press 414 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 414. Polio. Immediately inside the doorway, an introductory text panel on the right wall reads, Polio. I think probably the thing that took the most courage in his life was his mastery and his meeting of polio. Eleanor Roosevelt. Handsome, accomplished, and fun-loving, Franklin Roosevelt led a charmed life. Family wealth and social connections placed him among the nation's elite. A famous surname helped launch his political career. 
Not yet 40 years old, he had worked at the highest levels of American government and run for vice president. The presidency itself seemed within reach. But in August 1921, everything changed. Along the back wall of the theater to your left, behind the three benches, are two floor-to-ceiling glass-enclosed display cases with artifacts of FDR's life with polio. Turning to your left, walk about four feet and turn left. A text panel to the left inside the first case begins, Polio and Paralysis. On August 10, 1921, FDR spent a strenuous day sailing and swimming near his family's summer home on Campobello Island. Tired and feverish, he went to bed early, not realizing he was suffering the first symptoms of a polio attack. Polio left him permanently paralyzed below the waist. Eventually, he learned to stand and move using leg braces and crutches. He developed his arms, chest, and torso so he could appear to walk short distances in public using a cane and gripping a companion's arm. Much of the therapy that led to these accomplishments took place at a center for treatment of polio patients that FDR established in Warm Springs, Georgia, in 1927. He spent time there each year for the rest of his life. Among the artifacts in this case are the 10-pound steel and leather leg braces used by FDR, which were strapped to his legs and locked at the knees a set of expanding pincers to help retrieve papers on his desk that were out of arm's reach, and a letter from Franklin Roosevelt providing a detailed description of the onset of his illness to Dr. William Eggleston, dated October 11, 1924. The second glass artifact case, about two feet to the right, begins with the text, The March of Dimes and FDR. In 1934, FDR began using the occasion of his birthday to encourage Americans to hold birthday balls to raise funds for the Georgia Warm Springs Foundation, which operated the polio rehabilitation center he had established in 1927. In 1938, he created the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis to support the Warm Springs Center and aid polio victims around the nation. The foundation urged Americans to send their loose change to the president in a March of Dimes. The March of Dimes, as the National Foundation became known, supported the research and development of a polio vaccine by Jonas Salk in 1955 that eradicated the disease throughout most of the world. The March of Dimes continues today and focuses on premature birth and birth defects. Artifacts in this case include a March of Dimes poster, a model of a March of Dimes fundraising pavilion erected near NBC's studios in New York, given to FDR as a birthday gift in 1941, a birthday ball wishing well, and gift canes sent to FDR by his admirers. To your right against the wall is a tall wooden cabinet that discusses FDR's leg braces. FDR could not stand without the support of leg braces that locked at his knees and weighed up to 10 pounds. Because of the discomfort they caused, he generally used his braces only when making public appearances. He projected a smiling image despite the difficulty of standing and moving with the braces. 
lift the bar below to feel the weight of FDR's leg braces. Facing this wooden cabinet, turn around 180 degrees and walk about four feet and turn left. The three benches are now ahead of you on your left. You will now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. To exit the polio theater, continue walking about 10 feet forward along the right side of the room and through a doorway at the front right of the room. Upon exiting the theater, walk about another two feet and turn left. You're facing another small alcove in this gallery featuring a wall text panel describing FDR's political comeback with his victory in the 1928 New York governor's race. To listen to additional information about FDR's political comeback, please press 415 on your audio player. If at any time within the additional information you wish to return to where you left off, press the right arrow key. Layer 415, Governor. When widespread economic conditions render large numbers of men and women incapable of supporting either themselves or their families, aid must be extended by government, not as a matter of charity, but as a matter of social duty. Franklin Roosevelt, Message to the New York State Legislature, August 28, 1931. FDR's victory in the 1928 New York governor's race relaunched him into national politics. His election was notable in a year dominated by Republican victories. A seven-year struggle to come to terms with the effects of polio and paralysis ended with a triumphant return to public life. Roosevelt entered office with an activist agenda, determined to use government to improve the lives of New Yorkers. The onset of the Great Depression in 1929 increased his urgency. FDR's accomplishments as governor provided indications of what he might do as president. He pushed for public power, advanced union rights, instituted an eight-hour day for government workers, and was the first governor to champion old-age pensions funded by contributions from government, employers, and workers. In 1931, New York became the first state to provide relief assistance to unemployed people. FDR was re-elected in a landslide in 1930. That victory and his innovative record as governor immediately made him a presidential front-runner for 1932. A black-and-white photograph on the wall to the right of this panel shows FDR seated in a chair, wearing his leg braces, and looking at a newspaper whose headline proclaims, Roosevelt wins by 735,000. Democrats sweep Congress. You'll now be automatically redirected back to wherever you left off in the base message. This concludes the fourth section of our tour. Please turn to your right and walk forward six feet into the next room. To access the audio description for the next section of our tour, A New Deal, please press the rightmost button in the top row of your player's keypad or press 5 on your audio tour player.